All right, open your Bible, navigate on your device, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. That's going to be our text this morning. Isaiah chapter 2. The topic, while warning Judah of God's impending judgment, Isaiah jumps to the future millennial kingdom when the nations will beat their swords into plows. The title of our message, Make Plows, Not War. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning we humble ourselves before you. We thank you for the gift of salvation in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came to die for us and rise from the dead. And he's alive forevermore in heaven at your right hand, poised and ready to return, Lord, to bring us home and solve the problems of our planet, Lord, that began back in the Garden of Eden. Take control of the kingdoms of the world, Lord, and make them his kingdoms and usher in an age of righteousness. And I pray, Lord, that as we study your word this morning, your spirit would be our guide and our advisor and our counselor, that you come alongside of us. If there are folks here who need comforting, Lord, that we, uh, we know he is the comforter. He's another comforter just like you. It's as if we have you here with us today in our midst and in our hearts to bring us whatever comfort we need. And so I pray, Lord, that those who are hurting in need of comfort, Lord, would open up their hearts to you and receive your word, Lord, new and fresh and powerfully. That we would learn something about the text, but also about ourselves. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Rosie the Riveter, the poster girl for women who worked in factories during the war to end all wars. In January 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt ordered the establishment of the War Production Board. Its purpose was to convert factories of peacetime industries into manufacturing plants for weapons and military equipment. After the war, of course, the factories retooled to peacetime manufacturing. Rosie the Riveter went home. God had the idea centuries before Roosevelt. There are two verses in the Bible that discuss manufacturing changes during war and peace in ancient Israel. Joel 3.10, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Isaiah 2.4, which we heard read this morning, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, Joel wasn't talking about conflicts and wars through the centuries. He was talking about a specific future war it will be fought by mankind against God. He went on to say, and I read now from Joel chapter 3, verses 11 on, Assemble and come, all you nations. Gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. This valley of decision or of Jehoshaphat it's the place we call Armageddon, and this is the Battle of Armageddon. The nations of the world will gather there in combat against one another. Suddenly the sky breaks open to reveal Jesus Christ and his heavenly armies returning to the earth. 
and then the nations of the world will join forces against the Lord. It's not much of a fight. Jesus saves the human race from annihilating themselves. He establishes the promised kingdom of God on earth. Then and only then, with the Lord present and ruling, can the factories for the last time retool to making plowshares instead of, uh, or into pruning hooks. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your future can be one of hope, or number two, your future can be one of hiding. Let's take a look at hope in verses one through five. It's generally held that these Old Testament prophets did not fully understand what they were prophesying about. Prophets did not always live to see their prophecies fulfilled either. Most were without honor in their hometowns. Stephen, the first martyr of the church age, said to the religious leaders, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Because they persecuted them all. Speaking of all believers up to the time it was written, the book of Hebrews reminds us, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. If you and I are not raptured, if we should die before the rapture of the church, we will die without receiving the promise. By the promise, we mean the return of Jesus. No worries, if we die before the Lord comes, our spirit will be absent from our body and present immediately with the Lord. And when he does return, we'll be raised first, the dead in Christ, and then uh, with the raptured living, uh, go to live with the Lord forever. So it's, it's not anything to be worried about or nervous about. But it's interesting to think about, I think it can affect the way you walk with the Lord and the way you really think about the Lord when you understand that we may not see the answer to all of our uh, promises. Will we obtain a good testimony through faith? In other words, will we live by faith trusting God that all his promises are true, whether we see them fulfilled in our lifetime or not? Great promise that you learn early on in your Christian life uh, and you cling to, and you, uh, I'm sure you recite it all the time when you're in certain situations. Paul the Apostle, Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for the good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. Great promise, right? You, you have an absolute assurance that all things in your life, are, they're not good, he's not talking about all good things, but all the things in your life will work together for the good because our God is a sovereign God of providence and he can mold and shape our lives uh, through whatever happens uh, to the course of our life, okay? Uh, but you need to know you are not going to see all things until you are in heaven. Sometimes we feel like we can analyze what's going on in our life. Oh, this happened because that was going to happen, and then this happened, and it all came together. You know, we, we kind of think of, of life in terms of a mystery movie, right? Where you're trying to figure out how it all works out, who done it, and then at the end they reveal, you know, the whole thing and it all fits in together. Uh, or, or like the first time you see the sixth sense, right? And, and you think, what? He was dead the whole movie? Man, that really comes together, right? You know what I mean? And so we think, okay, this is the Christian life. Uh, I'm sick, and God is going to do this because if I wasn't sick, this wouldn't have happened, and then that wouldn't have happened. It all comes together. And then, you know, a lot of times, though, you're, you're just sick, and nothing happens. Nothing really comes together. You, you see no purpose in it at all. And then you fall back on Romans 8, 28, right? And you, all things work together for the good. So God, show me the good. Well, no. I, I really, I can't show you the good right now because it might span decades. 
it's too complicated. It's not as easy as all that. And so we need to figure that out. And so the idea is that if I walk by faith, then I will have the hope that I need by looking at things that the Lord has promised to not get discouraged and disgruntled and all these things. In fact, one church leader said, the word hope I take for faith. And indeed, hope is nothing else but the constancy of faith. So if I really believe that all things work together for the good, I don't need to see them work together for the good. I know that they will, and that will give me hope for the journey ahead. The word Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, verse 1. Isaiah described his experience as the word he saw. I don't know why, but I like that description of God speaking to him. We are privileged to sometimes see the word. For example, if you lead a person to Christ or you witness it, you're seeing the word in its promised power. Uh, I mean, that's a wonderful thing. People talk about, you know, well, I don't see miracles today. And yet anytime someone is born again, it's a miracle of birth. It's a miracle of the new birth. And in a sense, you are seeing the word of God. It's power, it's effect, it's the wonder of it as somebody transfers from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from death to life, eternal life with the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes in them and makes them a new creature. You are seeing the word at work. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel would soon be overrun by the merciless Assyrian army. Isaiah was ministering in the south in the kingdom of Judah and especially the city of Jerusalem. And so in verse 2, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. The latter days in this passage are the time uh, when the things mentioned in these verses occur. It is after the Lord returns to rule over the kingdom of God on earth. We mostly refer to it as the millennium or the millennial kingdom because the book of the Revelation tells us over and over and over again it lasts 1,000 years. It is the period of time between Jesus Christ's second coming and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. The Lord's house on earth during that time will be a temple in Jerusalem. The millennial temple, as we like to call it, occupies the last nine chapters of Ezekiel. It's an incredibly important structure, and it takes up a big portion of the Old Testament. Jerusalem is an uphill climb to an elevation of nearly 2,500 feet. That's not really very high, so how is it above other mountains and exalted in the hills? Well, one way would be by its authority. It may not be the tallest peak, but it's home to the greatest person. And so because Jesus is there ruling the world, uh, it is uh, the top peak of authority in the world. But it may actually be the tallest peak at that time. In the Great Tribulation, there will be, and I quote, a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. That's powerful stuff. Probably not uh, figurative, probably literal. So you better not vacation in Hawaii during the you know, Great Tribulation. Uh, just you know, tell your friends, hey, by the way, since I'm witnessing, if you don't get saved before the rapture, don't go to Hawaii or Japan or the Philippines. Don't go to any islands because they're all going to be gone. And don't go to the mountains either. In fact, there's no place you can go. Uh, it's going to be terrible and terrifying. And so it could be that the entire geography of the earth will change. 
When Jesus returns, as you know, there will be living human beings on the earth who have survived the great tribulation, both unbelievers and believers. In a judgment that we call the sheep and the goats, believers are separated from the unbelievers. Unbelievers are sent to the place of temporary punishment to await final judgment. Believers will enter into the kingdom in their human bodies, begin to repopulate the earth and the nations of the earth. We label as millennials anyone born between 1981 and 96, but the true millennials are those who are in the millennium. Uh, and so uh, anybody born again who ends up in the millennium, that's going to be the title. Isaiah likens this traffic into Jerusalem to a river's flow. We could say that humans from every generation and nation, tribe, tongue, and people will be constantly streaming into Jerusalem. That will make the number one streaming service on earth Jerusalem. Got it? It's a cheap joke, but it works. Three of you thought it was funny, and I appreciate that. Uh, verse 3, many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, obviously, everybody's going to want to get up to see the Lord and uh, make the trek to Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, you've heard the expression, there's a new sheriff in town. It means that things are going to be handled differently than they were previously. The many people who go to be taught his ways may be a reference to delegations from all the nations of the millennial earth. They came to know Jesus during the Great Tribulation. I mean, it's, you can't even really imagine what it would be like to be in the time of the Great Tribulation, especially the last three and a half years, be a non-believer and then come to faith in Jesus Christ, be very different than anything any other generation of Christians has experienced. Even those that have been severely persecuted, there's, not gonna have, there's nothing like the Great Tribulation in terms of the physical changes to the earth, the things that are being poured out from heaven and the persecutions of the Antichrist. And so for three and a half, two and a half, half a year, that's all these people have known. That's their version of Christianity. That's their experience with Christianity. And so all of a sudden, Jesus is there ruling and reigning. They've never seen a Bible. They've never seen the law. They don't know what the law is. Uh, and so they will need to be taught from the very basics, what it means to be a Christian in a perfect society and how to rule and govern and be governed. And so uh, that will be a lot of why people are coming to the Lord, not just out of curiosity or to see him out of obedience, but they will need his instruction to rule and reign on the earth. Verse 4, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This word rebuke could be translated decide or convince or convict. Jesus will arbitrate between nations, making final binding decisions and enforce them. Doesn't it drive you crazy? Well, you probably, you know, it will drive you crazy if you look at anything that comes out of the United Nations. Uh, and, you know, everybody blusters and speeches and all, and nobody can do anything. And you think, man, can't things go right for once? Well, when Jesus is arbitrating, it's going to be like, yeah, you know what? That was wrong. I rebuke you. I convict you. Uh, you know, we're going to do more than sanction you. Something's going to happen here. 
And so he will arbitrate these things and rule uh, over the earth. I hate to be the one to deliver such terrible news, especially to this group, but there's going to be a ban on assault rifles uh, during the millennium. You will have to turn in your assault rifles, plural, uh, to, uh, to be beaten into plowshares. But you'll, you'll be happy about that because we're not going to learn war anymore. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, human beings have learned violence. Al Capone once said, you can get much further with a kind word and a gun than you can with a kind word alone. And that uh, says a lot. Michael Corleone said something like this, if anything in this life is certain, if history has taught us anything, it is that you can kill anyone. And so these mob philosophies basically are the way human beings think. Uh, there's always, you know, they talk about the nuclear option, and in this case, it's, I'll just murder you then. If, if I can't, you know, convince you otherwise, then we'll go to war and I will murder you. It makes sense because Jesus called the devil a murderer from the beginning. And since he is the ruler of this world until the Lord returns, then he is a murderer and he's going to teach us to murder. He is a homicidal maniac set loose among the human race. Jesus is not a pacifist. He will gently shepherd the inhabitants of the earth, that's true, but when necessary, his rod will be one of iron resolve. He's going to demand obedience to doing what is right with severe consequences for any wrong behavior. Righteousness will rule the earth. The Lord will say, this is what's right, and this is what's going to happen. And as we go on in Isaiah and other Old Testament books, you see different facets of the millennium and how that all plays out. I want to note that these first four verses are also the first four verses of chapter 4 in the book of Micah. Critics argue about who said it first, Isaiah or Micah. The answer, of course, is that God said it first, and they both uh, noted it in their writing. His repetition ought to pique our interest. And so to, to uh, repeat these a couple of times should get us looking at them in more detail. So I encourage you to do that during the week. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This world is darkness, spiritual darkness. Ahead is the brilliantly lit New Jerusalem. Walk towards its light. Uh, the picture you have here is it's a beautiful picture. Uh, if, if AI was going to paint it, you could you know, say, hey, I want a person walking in darkness to this beautiful celestial city. And so imagine yourself, your Christian life is you surrounded in, or, you know, in the darkness of this world, but ahead you see the new Jerusalem symbolizing eternity. And when you read the New Jerusalem's description in the book of the uh, Revelation, it's all made of precious gems and jewels, mm -hmm. pearls and diamonds and sapphire and everything you can imagine. The streets are made of gold, not because it's so plentiful, but because it's so valuable. And so from a distance, it would be shining and reflecting uh, its own light and the light of Jesus Christ. And, and it would be the only thing that you could see and so that's what we're talking about here, is, is setting our, our sight on that in this dark world in which we live. Sadly, Judah would refuse to do this and go after idols, trusting in other nations rather than the Lord. They would go dark. Believers sometimes go dark. All of a sudden you realize you haven't seen them at church or anywhere for that matter. It doesn't always mean they're backslidden, but it could. It's not a good thing to go dark if you're a Christian. 
We want to be meeting with other Christians and, uh, you know, getting fed and getting fellowship and all this kind of thing. And so, um, you know, from time to time, we know somebody will say, hey, you haven't seen, you know, you haven't seen Gene in church for a while. What's going on with Gene? I don't know. Let's call him. And so people call him. Gene says, I'm fine. Leave me alone. Get away. You know, that kind of thing. I'm just working hard or whatever and stuff. And then, you know, a couple of years later, you find out, yeah, I was backslidden, but, you know, I should have listened to you, and I, thanks for reaching out and all that. So if you're a Christian, don't go dark. Uh, you know, and, and that's a kind of, a, in fact, I, I'm going to call it that from the, the go dark movement. Uh, there's a lot of stuff online and in magazines about how fewer people are coming to church now after pandemic, right? Uh, and, and a lot of people have decided, even Christians, they thought, well, my church told me it was great to stay at home and watch church, so why don't I just do that since it's so great? And so a lot of churches, they've not bounced back, they haven't recovered. And so it's kind of a go-dark movement. You know, just be my own Christian at home where I minister to myself and receive ministry and receive ministry through teaching, but I don't have to put it into effect. I don't have to see it work out in the body of Christ. Uh, You know, and so don't go dark. Um, You know, we're going to remain Calvary Chapel, not go-dark chapel, you know, and stuff. But uh, so these two, so if somebody tells you this stuff and say, oh, you're part of the go dark movement. I like that. This is so, I mean, I should write a book right now. This is, this is it. This is my time. <clears throat> anyway, athletes sometimes describe a feeling of being in the zone. Any of you athletes or you've been athletic in your life, have you ever been in the zone? In that state, you feel invincible as if the game slowed down, the crowd noise fell silent and you achieved an incredible focus. The Apostle Paul talked about focus. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Hope in the Lord's return can help us be in the zone. Whether we die short of his coming or live to be raptured, it don't matter, as long as we are straining towards heaven. Hope can shut out all the periphery that distracts us from Jesus. And so have faith, uh, even if you especially as you don't see things happening, believe that they will work together for good, maintain that hope, and you can shut out the periphery that is holding you back. Now, your future can be one of hiding. Do you have a go bag? Should be a sturdy and easy-to-carry backpack or duffel bag containing things you would want to have with you if you had to leave in a hurry. My go bag has a lot of fresca in it. I don't have a go bag. Maybe I should. Because you never know, the zombie apocalypse, a pandemic, a planet overrun by apes, it's all, it's all out there. Prepping is not crazy as long as you're not a prepper. There's a line somewhere between being ready and being Rambo. And so you'll, you'll have, to, you have to find that for yourself. But if you find yourself on your spare time wearing a load-bearing vest uh, that says you know, something about your gun... You might have a problem. In the future great tribulation, when God's measured wrath is unleashed, men will try to hide in caves. But as the song says, there will be nowhere to run to, nowhere to hide. Go bags and diesel generators are, going to get you, are not going to get you through safely. And so verse 6, For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, And they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Judah was looking to the east for help. They adopted dark practices of eastern religion, such as soothsaying, which is sorcery. 
They were intermarrying, having children of foreigners. Now, God isn't a racist. Foreign wives, however, meant foreign religious practices. It meant idolatry. And secondly, uh, Israel is a tribal culture. And, and you and I, unless we come from a tribal culture, know nothing about what that would be like in terms of marrying outside of the tribe and, and all, because your, your entire life, livelihood, inheritance, everything was caught up in your tribe and who you were descended from. And so uh, this, these were problems for Judah. Looking to the east could cause nothing but heartache. The title of Isaiah's message could have been, You've Got to Change Your Eastern Ways, Judah, to a Carlos Santana song, right? In fact, Santana admits now that he got his... No, that's not true. <laughs> Some of you younger people are saying, Who's Carlos Santana? Was he the president of Mexico during the... It, it, did, he, did he found Santa Ana on their way to Disneyland or what? Google it. Their land is also full of silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses and there is no end to their chariots. Wealth and military might are a good thing until you trust in them instead of trusting in the Lord. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down and each man humbles himself before his idol, therefore do not forgive them. If you worship what you make, you are worshiping yourself. The idol represents what you want. The practices involved worshiping it usually bring you self-gratification. Does Isaiah really ask God not to forgive them? Well, this can be translated, the Lord will not pardon them. If they refuse to repent, God cannot forgive them. If they repent, we learned last week, God will relent of judgment, but they have to repent in order for him to do that. Isaiah suddenly pivots and looks past the 8th century, past our 21st century, to see the great tribulation. Verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. In the Revelation we read, this is chapter 6, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, they hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 11, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Mankind will manifest a lofty looks haughtiness. It describes someone who looks down on others, thinking themselves superior to them in some way. God says, I'm going to bring that man low. Right now he's bowing to his idols. I'm going to bring him lower than that in, in terms of seeing who is really God. Uh, we can do this sometimes. It's kind of natural for us to have a sense of superiority. In, you know, even if we're not judging someone, uh, like, for example, uh, you know, some of you parents are going to be mad at me, but that's okay. It's, you know, I haven't insulted you for a while. Uh, but anyway, uh, we sort of think in our culture uh, generally that you're better off with a college education than without one, right? I mean, don't you, you know, I mean, you don't have to agree or disagree, but I, I think that's true. The average person, oh, you got a college education. Wow, that's exciting. 
what you're, you know, what's exciting about it to me is that you're, you're like $75,000 in debt. Is what, you know, unless you have, well, never mind. But uh, anyway, uh, and so, but is it, is, it tr is it true? Is it really true? Having a college education is better than not? Well, it depends on what you're going to do, who you're going to be, your path in life. I have a college education. I have, I have two degrees from the University of California at Riverside. They're useless. <laughs> They've always been useless. They could have gotten me into a graduate school, so I could have been more in debt, but that's about all. They're in philosophy and psychology. Very useful in my pulpit ministry to keep me from talking about psychology or philosophy. But uh, other than that, but you know, am I, you know, I'm glad I went to college because I didn't want to go to work uh, for four years, and, and that worked out pretty well. Uh, but so, you know, we have a tendency to think, oh, wow, you went to college. Uh, yeah, okay. We have this kind of thing that we need to fight. And so verse 12, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything lofty and proud, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Day of the Lord, here's a reference to the entire great tribulation. You could look at that entire time as God's attempt to humble, lofty, haughty men. Uh, Barry Webb writes this. He says, many of Isaiah's contemporaries look forward to the day of the Lord as the time when he would step in and destroy Israel's enemies, just as he had done long ago in the days of Moses and Joshua. But Isaiah and the other 8th century prophets realized that this confident expectation was grounded in arrogance rather than faith. For Israel and Judah had taken on the ways of the surrounding nations and were therefore just as deserving of judgment. In fact, they were more guilty than others because of the greater privileges they had enjoyed. And this is a most sobering thought and one that we ourselves would do well to ponder. Now, uh, what I guess this translates to me is that it's okay for us, let's say, to get together and pray for our country, right? We need to. We need to pray for our nation. We talked a lot about this last week, about the downward spiral we are in morally and, and, and how we are ripe, overripe for judgment from, from the Lord. And so we want to be praying. But we also ought to be praying about God humbling us, about God forgiving us, about God using us, about God showing us the idols in our life. I mean, just getting back to some really basic Christianity in terms of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he the, the master of my entire life? Am I dabbling over here or doing something? And so we need to be praying just as much either in our closet or corporately for ourselves and for the church that we would be what the Lord wants us to be. And so that's uh, something that Judah made that mistake. They thought, well, we're, we're Israel. Uh, we can understand our neighbors to the, they never should have split from us anyway, the 10 tribes, and we have the temple. Check it out, we have the temple. God certainly wouldn't judge us with the temple. And he said, oh yeah, just watch me. I'll destroy it as many times as I have to, because what I'm really after is your heart. And so we need to be praying uh, for a personal revival in our own lives. And if you sit there, if I, if I were to say, or you were to say, well, I don't need revival, Boy, do you need revival, right? I mean, anybody that says they don't need revival needs it bad. And so let's just be praying about that. Verse 13, upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower and upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all the beautiful sloops. Now, this is a poetic section to tell us that the day of the Lord will affect the entire planet. Land, verse 14, the sea, verse 16, and everything men have built in verse 
15. Everything uh, that man has built will be destroyed. Verse 17, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be uh, brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Let's call these things pride. Pride was the devil's downfall and it was pride that got our original parents in trouble in the Garden of Eden wanting to be like God. To super oversimplify the situation, God will bring us low in order to lift us up to sit with him. Verse 18, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. No idols, no idol worship. Sounds good, right? And so let's apply that. Sometimes you may need to separate yourself from a thing that is uh, creating a problem for you and the Lord. Uh, I can't tell you what that is unless it's obviously sin. If something the Bible says is sin is doing it, then I, uh, we can address that to each other. But if it's just some hobby or some habit or something, uh, you know, that's between you and the Lord. But is it, is it hindering your walk with the Lord? It's popular today among young, restless, reform uh, individuals. You know, they, they, and I'm not saying this is even bad. It'd be bad for me. But, you know, they go to pubs and they smoke cigars and pipes and they drink ale. Hopefully it's warm ale like they did in Luther's day. And they're doing like a Martin Luther thing where they, they discuss the, oh, what do you think about the election of the adult? Oh. You know, so, and, and that's fine. It's just not for me, right? And, so, and it may not be for some of them. It, it may be a situation where it's, it's hindering your walk with the Lord. Anything could be like that. It doesn't have to be drinking and smoking and chewing and spitting and, you know, all that kind of stuff. could be anything. Uh, and, and so just, you know, uh, be careful about those sorts of things. It's not a sign of weakness, but of wisdom to eliminate your idols and stay away from your temptations. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. We talk about the World Economic Forum in our Prophecy Updates. It's that organization that's trying to rule the world with the uh, elites from politics and business. Uh, they meet in Davos, Switzerland once a year, but they want to meet more than that now as their agenda is being pressed forward. And so they announced that they're going to build a village where their members can come anytime and interact with one another. It's going to be the village that Hillary built, maybe. I don't know. Remember, she said it takes a village to... And so now it takes a village to take over the world. But anyway, if their village doesn't have bunkers, they're going to be in trouble during the Great Tribulation, and even then. You realize there's no place you can hide, no place you can run. If you're going to prep for the Great Tribulation, there's a kind of a movement afloat again that, well, maybe the church will go through the Great Tribulation. Well, then you get a, better get prepared for it, right? But there's no place you're going to be go far enough to hide from what's going to happen. When you, you know, on the two days a year when we can see the Sierra, right? Imagine the Sierra leveled by this great earthquake that's going to hit the earth. Where are you going to be in the Sierra that you're going to hide from that? Or underground? Or I mean, So prepping is, the way you should prep for that is the same way you'd prep for the rapture. And that is to just get into the Lord and share him with others, right? That's the, that's the prep and let him worry about the rest of it. In that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship to the moles and bats, the other inhabitants of caves, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. 
Shake and bake, we call it, because we read in the Revelation, then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Verse 22, sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? In this verse, Isaiah comes back from the future to continue addressing Judah. Breath in his nostrils is a way of referring to the frailty of human life. Any breath could be your last breath. The exhortation here is for Judah to stop trusting in alliances with other nations and trust instead in their covenant relationship with God. God said he would take care of them and and protect them and keep them if they would just obey him. And instead, they had gone away from that into idolatry, and they were looking to these other nations and making alliances with them to protect themselves against Assyria in particular, and uh, it just wasn't going to work. I had a kidney stone once, and I know all of you who've had kidney stones are now kind of squirming. You hadn't thought about that for a while, but you know, if you're, they call you a stone producer if you've ever had one. The other one's coming. It's going to be horrible and awful like mine was. But anyway, so I'm sitting there with this kidney stone wanting to die, and the doctor shot me up with Demerol. Didn't take long for me to experience tunnel vision. Have you ever actually had tunnel vision? It's wild. Where all of a sudden your vision, you start to lose all of your peripheral vision. It just goes black, and it gets blacker and blacker and darker until you're literally just looking at one thing right in front of you that's in the light. It would have been scary, except I was so high and I wanted to die anyway that I just figured, okay, this is, you know, this is how it's going to happen. They've, they've given me the shot. You know, this is early euthanasia, I guess, but whatever. I, I survived. Uh, I'll tell you about my paranoid reaction to Demerol sometime next time. But anyway, that's a, that's a you know, anyway. Tunnel vision, a metaphor we apply to describe someone who's focused on their goal, shutting out everything else. We need to have, as it were, a spiritual tunnel vision. We need to block out sin and the world, focus on the Lord. We need to be looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. Same thing I talked about earlier. Just the world is darkness. It's all dark except for the Lord's light represented by this great city. We need to let faith produce hope as we wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen?